today we're going to finish up our sermon series entitled Jesus is Better. And we've been looking at the betterness, I don't think that's really a word, but we've been creating words and looking at the betterness of Jesus. And um, that's really the theme of the book of Hebrews. Uh, there, are, there are several themes throughout Hebrews, several things that, that you could find and, 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 and study. But, but, but really, the, the writer of Hebrews is constantly driving home the, the reality that Jesus is better. Because the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. It was written to um, formerly Jewish Christians who had come out of Judaism and had put their faith in Jesus. And so if you've been with us at all within the past seven weeks, you've been hearing all about um, Hebrews. And it's my favorite book of the Bible. And so that's why this is the longest series that City Chapel has ever done, because I've just been hanging out there. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today we're going to look at the last two chapters. And actually, I'm going to do it a little bit differently today. And we're going to read through the chapters, and I'm going to sort of preach as we go along, if that's all right. And, and just this is called um, expository preaching, by the way, for those of you who are going to Bible college. Called expository, you go word for word and look at the word of God, and and uh, it's just it's just such a powerful book and such a powerful reminder that whatever you might be tempted to return to, uh, for these guys it was Judaism. They were looking at going back, but I think that's true for all of us. We all have, uh, we all have a, <laughs> we all have a little bit of bass in our microphones that uh, that occasionally just kind of sounds like an extra voice in there. Um, <laughs> You ever you ever get get distracted when you're when you're trying to do something? Whoa, okay, hey, hello. The anointing came into the sound wall. Hallelujah. Thank you, Monica. Um, okay, we're back. Uh, uh, whatever you're tempted to go back to, these Jews were tempted to go back to Judaism. It was familiar. It was what they were used to, and it was where their faith had been for years. And and the writer of Hebrews says, look, look, time out. Don't go back. Keep your faith in Jesus. And I think it's such an applicable message for us today because we are often tempted to go back to things. We're tempted to go back to what we grew up leaning on and relying on. And, and you know, we, we still pay lip service to Jesus. We want Jesus and these other things. But the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything else. And so put your faith in Jesus. Don't rely on anything else. So with that being said, let's jump to Hebrews chapter 12. We got into the first two verses last week. We're going to start in verse 3. Um, we'll have a giant Bible here for you right there. And I, I, I love this first verse. He says, for consider, for consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against, against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I love that. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is Jesus. And here in chapter 12, again, he says, for consider him. Let's just, let's just think about Jesus for just a minute. Let's think about consider Jesus and how he endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now, what he's saying, really, without saying it, is you are going to endure some hostility. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you are going to. I like to tell a little story here just to kind of make you giggle. Jesus loves you and has a but You are going to face some hostility. You're probably not going to hear that on Caleb. But you are going to face some hostility in this life. 
And, and, and we don't talk about it a lot in church. We don't really preach on it because people don't really shout you down or shout amen or, yeah, Harry, all right, I'll take this for me, brother. That's me. I'm going to face hostility in this life. Yeah, against myself. Well, but, but here's the truth. If you live very long and if you want to follow Jesus for any length of time, you have to recognize this as a reality. You are going to face some hostility from sinners. You are surrounded by sinners. In fact, even if you're sitting at City Chapel, you are still surrounded by sinners. So, yeah, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. You, 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 you have to understand that. And sometimes I, I think we, we, we get caught off guard. We get, we get so surprised by this. We, we, we are shocked when hostility comes our way, when something difficult comes our way. We're like, where did that? That just came out of the blue. And sometimes we've even developed theologies that almost imply that if you are really godly, you won't really face hostility against yourself like everybody will like you people will everybody will, will share your posts and and they'll 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 you'll be popular because because you'll be like jesus and we all know that jesus was crucified because he was so popular they loved him so much but the truth is you are going to face some hostility in this life you're going to face some hostility from sinners and so if you're new to this whole thing and maybe you're not even a christian and you're like i'm thinking about becoming a christian let me just tell you it's not all rainbows and and sugar gum drops and fairies and and and, and sparkly dust it's it's is there's some hostility that you're going to face in fact if you're thinking about joining city chapel let me just let me just pre-warn you you are not joining heaven you are joining city chapel <laughs> we are the world's okayest church, okay? We have sinners, we have people with hang-ups and, 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 and issues, and those issues are going to rub you the wrong way. And your issues are probably going to rub somebody else the wrong way. You're going to face some hostility in this life. But here's the issue. you got to consider Jesus. You have to look to Jesus. You have to focus on Jesus. This is what he's saying. He's like, okay, now, when, when you're facing hostility, don't look around. Don't try to defend yourself, but look to Jesus. What did Jesus do when he faced hostility? Scripture says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. So he did not rise up to defend his honor and to defend his family and to defend his, uh, you know, well, you know, I really meant this and my reputation. It, he wasn't trying to guard himself at all. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged. Because that's what happens when you are completely unaware of the fact that Jesus suffered. And if Jesus suffered, you are going to suffer as well. We, uh, about a month ago, we got flooded. Our house was flooded. And, um, of course, we're, you know, we are completely like Jesus. We're basically Jesus' <laughs> second cousin. So, um <laughs> That's why I'm using this as an example, because, you know, if, if us perfect people um, could suffer such, uh, you know, the rest of the world will probably go through some things as well. There's going to be some suffering, not because you're sinning, not because you're doing something wrong or not praying enough or not reading your Bible enough. No, because, because you're living around Sin. You're living in a world where sin has, has permanently attached itself to almost every facet of our society. And so there's going to be issues. You're going to face some hostility in this life. But consider him, lest you become discouraged. Because if you don't consider Jesus and you just look around at your circumstances, you can become discouraged. You can become uh, weary in your soul. That means just tired 
of moving forward. And so he says, look, I don't, I don't, want, you, I don't want you to get tired. I don't want you to get, to get wore out, to get burdened. But I want you to consider Jesus. Because really, this, this book, the first 11 chapters of this book, while it has been full of great assurance and, and, and reassurance and comfort and, 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 and faith, it's also had some pretty strong challenges in it. It's also had some pretty straight, some pretty straight words of, of correction for, 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 these, for these Hebrews. And, and, and so he's saying, look, I don't want you, even if Jesus could endure hostility from sinners, you, you ought to be able to keep on walking when people are talking about you. You ought to be able to keep on walking when, when some correction is coming your way. You ought to be able to keep on moving forward, regardless of what kind of hostility you're facing, especially hostility even from sinners. So consider Jesus. And by the way, might I add, that is the way that we fellowship with him. Suffering is the way that we fellowship with God. That's what Paul says in Philippians, I think it's chapter 4. He says, I want to know Jesus. And I'm sure the Philippians are shouting him down, amen. Yeah, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Come on, somebody. You know, and hankies are flying at this point, you know. And, and uh, some of you have never been hit by a hanky, so just <laughs> never mind that. I have, actually. <laughs> I was like, is that clean? <laughs> and it was, it was, it was good. I gave it back. Uh, anyway, I didn't, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we, we, we love that. The power of his, come on, the power of his resurrection. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. <laughs> hey, whoa. Power of his resurrection, I was in for that. Knowing Jesus, all about that. But, but, but the only place you can really fellowship with God is in suffering because you can't associate or fellowship with his power you stand back and say wow that's huge you can't really fellowship or associate with his sacrifice because you could never sacrifice as much as him but in suffering we fellowship with jesus and so i, I would love for us at city chapel to have a, a healthy doctrine of suffering a healthy doctrine of hostility for consider him for consider the one who who we're following look at look at what happened to him he endured hostility from sinners against himself don't become weary discouraged verse four this is my former pastor's favorite scripture i think <laughs> you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin well come on somebody and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons my son he says do not despise the chastening of the lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the lord loves he chastens and scourges, that literally means whips, every son whom he receives. Verse 7 says, if you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? That's what I quote to Micah frequently. <laughs> what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? Who, you know, this is common sense. But if you are without chastening, of which all, he's meaning sons, all children have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. By the way, that's been a major theme of Hebrews, this whole idea of being illegitimate versus actually being a son. Because if you're illegitimate, you don't receive the inheritance from the father. And so he's, he, says, he says, look, this new covenant is not a covenant of, of, of illegitimacy where, whereby you kind of hang out in the house and you kind of hang out with God and you kind of get some blessings. But this new covenant is really through Jesus we receive actual sonship. We get born again. We get born a second time into this new family. And so we are not illegitimate kids. We are, we are actual, we have an actual birthright 
And that means that we can receive this new covenant. The other, the old covenant you had to work for, you had to earn. This covenant you receive through faith in Jesus. And so he says, we don't want you to be illegitimate sons. Those sons aren't disciplined. <laughs> Those sons aren't chastened. Furthermore, he says, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, uh, our human fathers, for a few days chastened us as seems best to them. But he, for our profit, in other words, he really knows what's best for us, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Can I get an amen? But painful. <laughs> Nevertheless, after it yields, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The difficulty, I think the difficulty with, 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 with reading this passage in, uh, to you all, for instance, as I'm looking to preach this and I'm reading through this, I'm thinking about who I'm reading to. And what's interesting is th I feel like I'm kind of at a disadvantage. I'm really, really struggling to, to explain what the writer of Hebrews is just naturally explaining because we have such a shortage of real fathers in our day. And this is not to make any current dads feel bad, but several of us were not raised with what he's talking about. You know, like for him, he's like, this is just common sense. All right, you had dads, they loved you, they chastened you, and the, so that's your earthly dad. Well, this is your heavenly dad. He's kind of like that, you know. He loves you, he chastens you, only it's way better. And so I could sort of tell you all that, but for several of us, you would get really, really, really warped ideas of who God is. And for several of us, we have had really, really warped ideas of who God is because we have not had dads like this. Because we haven't had fathers who chastened us in order to help us. So we've, we've had, and, and, I, and I understand that. When I, when I talk to this audience, uh, even today, the attendance is a little low because it's so cold outside. But even here today, we have people from every walk of life, some of whom didn't even know their father. Their father had walked out on them when they were just little. And so they were completely absent. And so there was no chastening. There was no, there was no connection. There was no even, like, you don't even know their first name. And that's the father that, that sometimes that, that we have in our minds. And so if you say, well, Jesus is kind of like, God is kind of like your dad. Well, no, no, he's not really like that at all. He doesn't walk out on you. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't, you know, just simply send money in the mail. That's not how God works. But at the same time, this is our perception of God. And I think, you know, several of us have had fathers that did chasten us, but they were abusive. So we have some here that, that I talked to, and they grew up in an abusive environment where there was chastening, but there was also alcohol involved. Well, let's just be real. Let's just, let's just be real. There was alcohol involved. There was anger involved. And there was just abuse. It's abuse. It wasn't for the benefit of the kid. It wasn't. It was just simply abuse. It was anger. Anger being lashed out, and so and so often you 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 learn you learn so much when you're a kid you don't even know what you're learning right your tracks are being set in your head the way that you see the world is being set by the time you're seven you're basically you have a worldview and that worldview goes with you through your life and so and so for many of us like like for Hebrews here he's like yeah you guys had these Jewish fathers and they 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 blessed you every evening they read you the Torah they 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 disciplined you when you when you did something wrong. You know, but, but, but for several of us, we didn't have that. We didn't have blessing every evening. We didn't have reading of scripture. We didn't have any 
thing like that. We had either indifference or, or absence or abuse. And so I just want to uh, recognize that, and I want to let you know that God's not like that. So instead, I just want to look, just, just, just forget about your earthly uh, uh, father and just think about your heavenly father for just a minute. Just put him in a completely different category. Now, for me, personally, I was blessed to have um, a great dad. I was blessed to have, uh, I mean, he's, he's, not a, he's not a preacher by any means. Yeah, you know, he was asked to stand up and pray one time, like in, our, like in a church. And anyway, that was... That was difficult for him. Uh, he's quite, you know, he's quiet. He's kind of reserved. He's not, he's not, uh, he's, I don't know where I got my preaching from. That was just from Jesus. But uh, he just, you know, he's just a really, really, really good man. He's a really good man, really good for our family, really good to my mom, really good to me. Um, but there was some chastening that went on, which, by the way, is also really good. If it's healthy, it's really good. Um, uh, for instance, I remember I was six years old, and uh, we were we had a Plymouth um, Horizon, those old Plymouth Horizons. Remember, it was like the hatchback, old gray Plymouth Horizon. And I was sitting in the back. I was six. I was on one side in a little booster chair, and my brother was three. He was on the other side in the car seat. And then in the middle between us was this really pretty thirteen-year-old girl named Debbie. And Debbie was our babysitter that day. And Debbie wore short shorts, and I liked Debbie. Just <laughs> FYI. <laughs> <laughs> Got to tell the truth in the house of the Lord. Um, I liked it when Debbie babysat us. You know what I'm saying? I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to impress Debbie. Debbie was cute, and so you know, I'm in the back seat, and my mom asked me something about cleaning my room, which is not really stuff you want to talk about around Debbie. <laughs> so I shot back some kind of smart aleck remark. You know. I have a flair for sarcasm, and uh, I had it even at six years old, so I shot back some kind of remark, and I remember, like, like the car just, like, like pulled over really, really fast, and I did not know what was going on. I thought, Dad, I thought we were, like, swerving to miss something, you know, and so Dad jumps out, he comes around, and he's feeling around, like, on the floorboards, and I didn't know what he was grabbing for until, like, he had my ankle in his hand. At that point, I'm, like, I remember swinging and looking at the curve. Right? <laughs> well, my rear end's getting lit up, you know. And uh, that's not a good way to impress Debbie either. <laughs> and next thing I know, I'm like upside down, like back in my like back seat area, you know. And Dad hops in and he's like, son, you need to apologize to your mom. And um, what I learned that day... <laughs> Is that, you know, it's, it's painful. Chast, ch ch chastening is painful for the moment, uh, as Scripture says. But what it, what it yielded inside me, what it taught me, is that respect is very important. Is that you never, it doesn't matter if Debbie's around, it doesn't matter who's around, respect is very important. And my dad wasn't going to have me disrespect my mom. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I learned that at six years old, which means I didn't have to learn that at 16. I already knew it. <laughs> And some 16-year-olds need to be, you know, pulled out of the car, I think, occasionally. It's kind of, you know, know what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm just saying. I don't. Uh, parents, don't clap at that. Come on. If you did it when they were six, you wouldn't have to be doing it now. Um, so for me and for me and my house, for our parenting, you know, 
we, 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 we grew, both my wife and I grew up in pretty good homes, but still, there's, there's ways in which my parents were not perfect, and there are things that we had to learn, and so, and so for us, I'm trying to parent like God parents, and there's three things in this passage. He says rebuke, that means conviction, like you are wrong, uh, and then there is uh, scour- scourging, like that's, you know, being upside down on the side of the curb, um, and those things are only mentioned once, once for each of those. But then what's mentioned a lot is something called chastening. Chastening is where you bring correction for the purpose of education. And this is what ought to be happening a lot inside of our homes, just by the way. And this is what happens a lot if you follow God. And so this is, this is why we want this to happen in our homes, which we're going to talk about next week. Because, because when I grew to a point in my life when I, when I, when I met God, it, God wasn't weird to me. He wasn't upside down. He wasn't like... Strange, because what happens is with a lot of our dysfunctional families that, we, that, we, that several of us have come from, we've come from an abusive father, and so we meet God, and we have a tendency to think he's kind of like that, like he could just get angry at any given moment. You know, he's just, you don't know what's going to set him off. And if you don't quite behave quite right, then you got to duck for a while. You know what I'm saying? Like you, gotta, you, you, know, like you don't really need to pray. You don't really need to go to church. You just need to duck. Like this is live a life of ducking until he's not angry anymore, and you've got to figure that out. But, 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 with, but with God, that's not the way that he is, okay? He, he knows your sin. He knows your hang-ups. He knows what's going on in your life, and he wants to bring chastening. He wants to bring correction with education to help you get over what you've been getting under, all right? He wants to lift you up. He doesn't want to tear you down, and he's not abusive. He's not, he's, 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 he's not, he's not looking for ways to, 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 to whip you or to squash you. It's not anger lashing out at you. But also, he's not indifferent, and also, he's not, so, so, uh, some of us had dads that prioritized our wor- his work much more than the relationship with you, and so tried to buy your affection by, 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 by giving you stuff, and, and so he would, he, would, he would buy you things, and that's how you thought that you were valuable, and so you come to God, and you're like, okay, God, now it's time for you to buy me some stuff, and, and uh, so that I know that I'm valuable, so that I know that you love me. And that's not the way that God is. And God is, God, is, God is completely different. He is a God who loves you, but he still chastens. And that's not a bad thing, and that's not an abusive thing, even though it's a little bit difficult. Therefore, he says, in light of that, strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. What he's saying is, I've been, I've been writing 11 chapters to you guys about the betterness of Jesus. But if you notice, in each one of those chapters, he, he bashes something, right? So if chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than angels. Now, if you're a big angel fan, <laughs> you're like, oh, man. <laughs> and then in chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is better than Moses. Now, if you were a big Moses fan, you're like, no, I mean, uh, you know, you know it's like he's, 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 come, he's crashing in on their little Moses party. And chapters 5 and 6, Jesus is a better priest, Jesus is better than sacrifices, Jesus is, Jesus is a better way, Jesus is a better covenant, all this stuff, all the stuff that they were putting their faith in, he's like smashing it to bits and like, yeah, Jesus is better. And that's not easy for us humans to take. And so he says, look, I, I, I recognize that, I, I recognize this chastening, it probably isn't easy for you. This isn't really a pat on the back, boy, you slugger, go get him, you guys are doing so great. No, it's a little bit of correction here saying, look, you're putting your faith in other stuff, stop it, put your faith in Jesus. And he says, I know that that's difficult for you, but the purpose is in order to strengthen you. I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to put your faith in something that can actually hold your faith instead of something that will make you fall 
So he says, strengthen the hands that hang down and, and the feeble knees. Make straight paths so that whatever is lame may not be completely dislocated, but may be healed. The body of Christ needs to be healed. And he says, you guys are very much a part of that body. And so in verse 14, he continues that theme. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That's important. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, not the law of God, not the commandment of God. To fall short of grace means to live lower than God is going to enable you to live. It doesn't mean that, you know, you, you slipped up, you said a bad word when you hit your thumb with a hammer. It's not, it's not falling short of grace. Falling short of grace is where God has power for you, and you, instead of receiving that power, you decide to do it on your own. You live a life that you can live, not a life that God can live through you. And he says, be careful. Don't let anybody live less than God has planned for them. Don't let anybody live a life that's less powerful than God in them. If you can do it on your own, you're not doing it right. And he says, just be careful. Look around. Look around for each other. Watch out for each other. Look out for the pieces of the body and, 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 and encourage people. The people that are relying on themselves and relying on their religion and relying on their, on, on, on their prayer time and, and on their Bible reading and on their religious rituals and going to church. Re remind them of the power that's available to them and to live up to that level, to live up to that scale. He says, look around, looking carefully. And then he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. By the way, that is how trouble is caused in the church through bitterness it's amazing that you can become offended at something there can be a bitterness inside of you what's interesting is he says it's a root of bitterness now he's, he's drawing a picture here of you know a plant and we're not really an agricultural society but but i i know a little bit about plants enough to know that the first things to grow are the roots the first thing to grow is not the top. You don't really see it. Like you put it in the ground, the first thing to grow is the roots. So it takes time. You, you, a week, a couple weeks, a month, a few months, and, and there's this root system growing. And by the time something pierces through the ground, by the time a reaction <laughs> comes out, by the time a blow-up happens, by the time gossip happens, there's already, I'm preaching now and you don't even know it, there's already a root system that has been festering and growing tentacles in the heart and in the soil of, of, of people. And by the way, this, this uh, root systems, they don't care about different, different, different ownership of soil. So if your soil is next to somebody's soil that has a bad root system, that root system will get into you. So you got to be careful. That's why we have to be careful. Watch out for each other. Look out. If you start seeing any kind of bitterness, attack that root. Get that root out. Pull it out of, of, of the heart. Pull it out of the soil so that it doesn't spread and cause trouble. And when it does that, he says, by this, many have already become defiled. He says, many of you, oftentimes the issue is not the issue. Well, come on, somebody. The, the argument is not the issue. The gossip is not the issue. The, the issue is not the issue. The, the bitterness is the issue. And where there's hurt with leadership and where there's hurt from authority, then there's tension between, between brothers. Where there's hurt with, between fathers, then there's tension between brothers. 
And that's what he's saying. What happens is he says, you're going you, you, to get offended at me for coming and correcting you. And what's going to happen is it's going to cause tension and division among yourselves. And it's going to pull you apart and you're going to be at each other. You're not even going to know why. And he says, it's because there's this root of bitterness. And so, and so he says, I don't want that. We also don't want any kind of fornicator or profane person like Esau who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. And that could be a whole sermon right there. But uh, by the way, you don't, you don't, you know, there's a lot of talk in Hebrews about birthright and about inheritance. And he says, but you can sell it. (laughs) You can sell it. What happened is Esau didn't value it, so he lost it. And so he says, don't allow bitterness to come in where you value trivial things more than you value your birthright. Hold on to what is really important, or you might lose it. You might sell it because some better option is going to come along, and you're going to be able to, to cash in on it for a temporary reward like Esau, and you're going to lose out on what God had for you in the long run. Some heavy, some heavy stuff going on. For you know that afterward, these readers would have known the story of Esau. He said, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For Verse 18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and to the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much, this is what it was commanded. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Verse 21 says it was so terrifying that the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. And this is what I want to come back to. I want to talk about this to close out. But he says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, that's us, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's the blood of Jesus. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? This is the warning, saying don't don't turn back. This one, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, he says, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. (laughs) Let us have grace, not fear. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the end of chapter 12. We've got to go through chapter 13 to make it through. Let, let brotherly love. Now, look at this. He's, he's, this, is, this is, he's just talking about this huge mountain issue, and then he comes into very practical teaching. Let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. Amen. I'm sorry, I just thought I'd throw that in there. But fornicators, (laughs) but fornicators, that's sex outside of the biblical definition of marriage, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
I love just how practical he's getting here. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. That's desiring what other people have. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's where contentment comes from, by the way. Contentment comes from looking to Jesus. Some people say, well, well you just got to look around. There's a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people that don't, that, that are worse off than you. And somehow that's supposed to make you content. <laughs> I was always concerned. We go on mission trips, you know, with teenagers and they come back and they're like, I'm so blessed. And I was like, oh, I don't know. There's some, like, some of the folks in the mission, but, uh, like living in a little tiny town in Mexico, seemed a lot happier than you. Seemed a lot happier than me, actually. I think they're blessed, you know? Like, Sometimes the people that we're envy, sometimes sometimes the people that we feel like we're really blessed, they have they're they're feeling sorry for us because they're like you're all stressed out, and I'm just happy over here, you know. And so uh, there's some there's this this, this this blessing here is not is not found in looking around seeing who doesn't have doesn't have as much as you because there's as many people as don't have as much as you. There's plenty of people who have more than you, and so when you look around, you can easily become discontent. So contentment doesn't come from looking around. It comes from looking up, from looking at Jesus. He says, look, look, you can be content in this holiday season. You can be content even if you don't get everything that you want. You can be content uh, even when you have to, you know, hang out with family that you don't like. Uh, come on, somebody. You can be, And I, I don't blame you. Some of your family, I wouldn't want to hang out with either. All right? This is just the way it is. I, I understand. I understand. You know, but you can be content because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can be content. You might be going into a holiday season where this is the first holiday season since you lost a loved one that was really close to you. And you you wish that one was here with you. But you can still be content because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is where contentment comes from, from looking within and seeing Jesus with you. Always. He says, you can be content. And so, be content. Number seven, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. I think that's kind of talking about pastors. You know, it's kind of talking about me. I think uh, remembering those who rule over you, speak the word of God to you. Um, you know, buying Starbucks gift cards for Christmas <laughs> season. I think that's in the original Greek. Um, but I love how it says, considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, don't just listen to anybody. Look at their life. Come on, somebody. So consider the outcome of their conduct. <laughs> Jesus Christ, he says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't be carried about by various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. It is good that the heart be established by grace. Is interesting teachings are fine and it's all good and well, but it is good that the heart be established by grace, by the grace of God that brings salvation. He says, in, uh, established by grace, not by foods and drinks, which have not profited those who've been occupied by them, because we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the camp. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us go forth to him. <laughs> let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city here. For we seek the one that is to come. 
Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. I love that. Because in the old covenant, you did bring sacrifices. And he says, we still got sacrifices. But the sacrifices we bring now is sacrifices of praise. So our sacrifices is thanking God. That's our sacrifice, that whatever situation we're in, whatever, whatever, whatever scenario we find ourselves in, whether we're having a weird bass sound in the, the speaker or not, we, 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 we give thanks to God because he is good. Not because we're getting everything we want, not because everything's going along to the plan that we had when we were 15, but because he is good, because he is with us. We have a, an attitude of gratitude, a spirit of thanksgiving. He says that's your sacrifices that you ought to bring to him now. Bring it to him. And I just, I just pray that there would be a spirit of thankfulness on City Chapel, folks. I pray that even if we're considered outside the camp, even when you're at your family gathering and people are complaining about politics or religion or whatever people find to complain about, I pray that you don't complain along with other people. I pray that you are grateful for what God is doing in your life. I pray that your lips start telling people about how good Jesus is. Because when you really understand the betterness of Jesus, it shows up in your talk. It doesn't just show up on church. It shows up with the way that you talk, with the posts that you share on Facebook, the stuff that you say. It shows up. If Jesus really is enough, then you are glad when all you got is just Jesus. If Jesus really is all you need, then when he's all you got, you're good. But the problem, we don't really believe that, so our mouth kind of betrays us. So I just pray that our mouth would just line up with the word of God this holiday season. And whatever you're missing, whatever you don't have, whatever you wish and your mother, whatever didn't happen, whatever, you know, whatever relationship status you are and you thought you'd be something different this year, whatever you are going through, I pray you're thankful. I pray you bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You say, I'm so thankful for Jesus because I have him. I have him, and he's all that I need. And he says, obey those. Obey those who rule over you and, and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Pray for us. I would echo that. Pray for, pray for me. Pray for my wife. Pray for my kids. Pray for, pray for your pastor. For we are confident that we have good conscience in all things, Desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, though through the blood of his everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you. Not working on you, he's working inside of you. What is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. And I appeal you, brethren, bear the word, bear this word of exhortation. Once again, he's saying, man, I know it's tough, but I want you to take it. I want you to let it make you better. For I have written to you in a few words. I thought it was kind of long, but okay. <laughs> know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you soon if you come shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all, amen. I love how he starts with grace and he ends with grace. He says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. I want to go back just quickly to uh, chapter 12 where he talks about, and uh, he talks about two mountains. He talks about 
the mountain, first of all. He says uh, in verse, let's see, verse 18, he says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. What that means is that this mountain that you're coming to is, is not the kind that you can touch. So it's not physical, it's not a physical mountain. But then he starts talking about the kind of mountain you can touch. He says it's the, it's the mountain that burns with fire, blackness, and darkness, and tempest. And he starts talking about uh, a scenario in the Old Testament where Moses went up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. God came down on Mount Sinai, and just dark clouds overshadowed everything. And the people were so afraid of that presence that they said, we, we, we're not going up there. And Moses, even Moses said he was trembling. And so Moses begins climbing the mountain. It's this big mountain in the desert, in the middle of the, 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 the Sinai Desert. He's climbing this mountain, and, and he meets with God. He's up there for 40 days. And the people aren't allowed to touch the mountain. If anyone touches it, even if an animal, you know, like, hold your cats back, hold your dog, don't let them. If anything touches this mountain... It's got to be killed. Why? Because when God came down on that mountain, God's holiness was so great that any unholiness that comes into contact with his holiness has to be put to death. And this is the old covenant. It's representative of the old way of connecting with God. There's this old mountain called Sinai. And in Galatians chapter 4, uh, uh, Paul talks about this mountain, this, 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 this old mountain. It represents the old covenant. And he says, by the way, and actually in Galatians, he, he connects that old mountain actually with, with, with what they were currently calling Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem. He says those two are the same thing now because they're symbolic of an old covenant. And so there's some things, though, about this new mountain that we're coming to. We know about the old covenant and the old mountain. We've been talking about that a lot, how it instills fear in people and it, and it instills inferiority. You can never measure up. You can never quite live up to the expectations that God has for you and God's laws. And he says, we're not going to that mountain. Once again, he's drawing a comparison. He says, we're not going to that mountain. We're going to something better. We're going to Jesus. We're going, Jesus is a better mountain. We're going to something better. There's a better mountain. And it's this mountain that he calls Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a really interesting uh, study in Scripture. The first time that you read about it is through David. David conquers this city that's called Mount Zion, and it becomes his home. And then in the Psalms, you read so much about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is called the city of God. Mount Zion is called the, it's, it's, it's the hill. In fact, when Jesus said, you are a city on a hill, Matthew chapter 5, he was talking about Mount Zion. This is what, this is what the Jews just rallied around. In fact, the people of God, the Jews were often called Zion themselves. So I have a couple of scriptures here. Psalm 132 verse 13 says, God has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. He says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell because I have desired it. Psalm 147, 12. So it's the place where God dwells. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. How can a mountain praise God? He's not talking to him. He's talking to people. He's talking to the people of God. So the word Zion had morphed really from, from, from just a place to something much bigger than that. In fact, um, uh, when, 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 when David was alive, he wanted to build a temple for God and he couldn't. And so his son Solomon built a temple for God. Well, guess where Solomon chose to build his temple? He chose to build his temple on Mount, Mount Moriah. And he changed the name Mount Moriah and called it Zion. Today, currently, what is known as Mount Zion is also known as the Temple Mount. 
um, that's that's currently occupied by uh, you know <laughs> two different countries kind of on the edge, and, and it's a highly contested, holy, holy spot. Well, what's interesting about Mount Moriah is Mount Moriah is the place where Abraham was led by God specifically to go to that particular mountain and sacrifice his son Isaac. And that was symbolic of what would happen hundreds of years later when Solomon built his temple on that mountain. There would be sacrifices for sin on that mountain. And now that mountain is, is, is a hotly contested holy ground. But it has, for centuries before that, it was, it was, the, it was the centerpiece of Jerusalem. It was the centerpiece of, of Judaism. It was the middle. It was the great Mount Zion. But when you start reading the New Testament, the New Testament writers do not recognize that piece of dirt as Mount Zion. They don't call it Mount Zion. They actually call it Mount Sinai because it represents an old covenant. They, they talk about Mount Zion in a completely different way. They talk about it as this mountain that cannot be touched with hands. It is not a piece of dirt. It is not rocks and dirt. It's not a physical thing that you come and touch and you and you climb and you and you get close to God that way. Instead, Mount Zion is referenced in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to read that real quick. Revelation chapter 21. It says that uh, he was carried away. John was carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, also known as Zion, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. He measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, height are all equal. In other words, it's perfect. It's perfect. Zion has perfection. It's perfect. Each side is exactly the same. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that's an angel. Construction of the wall, what it's made of, is jasper. The city was pure gold, and look at this, like clear glass. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen gold like glass. <laughs> gold is gold, glass is glass. He says, pure gold like clear glass. The foundations and the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third something, uh, the fourth. <laughs> there you go. Someone's got the interpretation of tongues. The fourth was emerald, the fifth something else. Somebody can let you know. The sixth was sardius, the seventh, hmm. the eighth, yeah, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, wow, the eleventh, and the twelfth was amethyst. I know that one. That was, was pretty crazy. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. The gate, the whole gate's a pearl. What in the world? Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. There it is again. Look. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They're in the middle. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk into its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now, now when I'm reading this, I'm like, this is, this is Zion. Zion is not a mountain that you climb up. Zion 
is a is a, a person that comes down. He said, I saw a heaven, I saw it coming down. This is the new covenant. The new covenant is not about climbing. The new covenant is about coming into a city. The old covenant, you had to climb. And I think sometimes we come to church and we still feel like old covenant kind of Christians. It's like, all right, you know, you just got saved. Good for you. You're just a young Christian. I've been climbing a while, though, so I'm a lot higher than you. So I'll help you out on the way. Right? Like there's this distance. Like I'm Moses and I'm up here and you guys aren't quite as spiritual as me. So you're going to have to climb for a little while. And for some reason, I don't know why, but we think that, that we get higher like the longer we are Christians. I've been Christian five years. I'm about halfway up the mountain. been Christian 15 years. <laughs> it's so funny because then we like kind of look down, right? When you're up, you kind of look down on, on those people just, oh, just got saved. Oh, bless their heart. They don't really know anything yet. They're just, man, they're little babies. I'm all mature and they're just babies. And, you know, it's like I'm up here. They're down here. We're, we're climbing. We're climbing. It's a climb. And all the way we climb, oh, we climb by learning how to dress right. We climb by learning how to listen to the right kind of music. We climb by, well, you got to learn how to watch the right kind of movies. And, you know, so you just say that, and, just, and all this stuff that's not about Jesus, it's just about climbing. And we focus the rest of our life climbing up this mountain. And God's like, no, no, you haven't come to a mountain that needs to be climbed. You've come to a mountain that needs to be entered. It comes down and you enter by faith. You enter into this mountain. It comes to you. It comes to you. There's no climbing. It's all level ground. Nobody's higher than anybody else. Nobody's more this than that than anybody else. The moment you're in the kingdom, you're just as great as those who've been in it forever. Your faith is just as real as anybody else's. There's no hierarchy. There's no levels. There's no, you know, this and then this and then this and that and that. And, that. and there's none of that. Everybody's on the same ground in this mountain. We're all standing on level ground. And there's no climbing. There's no striving. There's no work. You got to climb. No, you have to enter. And the only thing that keeps you out is when you refuse to enter. And he says, look, everything, the gold, the pearls, <laughs> the jasper, the other stuff, <laughs> is clear as glass. Now, that's a little bit strange to me. How in the world do you have gold that is clear like glass? It's either gold or it's glass. I don't get it. I don't understand. So it must be a heaven thing. But what I do understand is what that means. What that means is when you're standing on the furthest part of this city, you can see the lamb in the middle because all the walls are glass. All the roads are are glass. Everything's glass. So there is gold in heaven, but you're not supposed to focus on the gold. You're supposed to see through the gold because the point is not the gold. The point is the lamb. The point is the, the light that's shining through all of these things. And I think that is a representation of really what Zion is. Zion is a place where, yeah, there's gold, but you see right through it. Yeah, there's, there's mansions and eternal piles of cookie dough, but <laughs> maybe that's just in my heaven. But you see right through it because it's not about the mansion. It's not about the gold. It's about the lamb. And I think when we start to enter into Zion here and now, we experience the same phenomenon. That yes, 
we have blessing. Yes, we have favor. Yes, we have a savings account. Yes, we have a vehicle. Yes, we have homes to live in. But you see right through it, and you see Jesus. And when people look at you, the point is not you. The point is not what you can do or what you can accumulate. The point is for them to see through you. We need, we need glass souls, glass buildings. We need glass preachers and glass musicians and glass websites and glass stages and, and glass buildings and, and glass theaters. We, we, we need to be a city that at whatever point you are in, you can always see Jesus. And it's not about other stuff. Yeah. This is Zion. And it's interesting because I talked to people and we had newcomers meal last week and it was awesome to sit around and talk to folks. And, and they tell me what they feel like when they come into City Chapel and when they hang out with City Chapel and things like that. And it's all amazing things. Um, but I'm kind of puzzled sometimes because... It's all things that we can't, I can't do. I can't make them feel that way. Uh, people feel at home. People feel like they found a home. People feel free. People feel whole. People feel like they're not ashamed. People feel like the, the guilt of their past doesn't really hold them back anymore. People feel lighter. They talk about feeling lighter. And I'm like, well, you know, I can tell jokes and preach, but that doesn't help you feel lighter. Like, we sing, we play instruments, but that doesn't do that. Right? Yeah, like that doesn't make you feel at home. Home, like home is a powerful word. We can't do that. So I've come to realize people aren't really impressed with City Chapel. People are impressed with Zion. And when Zion comes down, people say, yeah, this is it. And for too long, I think as, a, as preachers and as churches, we have pointed people to the wrong mountain. And we said, all right, get climbing. I think it's just really good just to be like, no, forget about that mountain. Just come into this space where Jesus is. Come into this glass space. And we got the stuff. We have small groups and, and teaching. and we, we have the things, but it's not about the things. You see through the things, and you see the Lamb in you. And he offers salvation. <laughs> and he offers acceptance, and he just lets you come in. And there's no climbing. There's no elevation. You know, you're not any greater, any less. You're on level ground with us. You're part of the family. And so if you'd like to accept that, I'd just like to give you an opportunity to pray with me. We're going to bow our heads and close our eyes here for just a moment and just take 30 seconds that if you have been on the outside of Zion and, and you've seen the effects of it on people, <laughs> you've seen how it changes us and how it reforms us and how it makes us all the things that Hebrews chapter 12 and 13 have been talking about. And you would like that. You would like to step into that. I'd like you just to raise your hand right now and say, I want to come into that place. I want to come into that space. I